This is Intelligence Squared U.S., the nation's leading nonpartisan debate series, where the world's most influential minds debate the most important questions of our time, and you decide who carries the day. Progressive populism unifies and brings us all together. The Republican Party is institutionally and demographically stronger than it's been in decades. But if religion and belief in God is such a great force driving moral progress, how come it fails so abysmally? Science is very good, but it's half the equation. You need both. The U.S. does need to challenge China's unfair trade practices. Capitalism is not a blessing. It's unstable. It's unequal, it's undemocratic, and it's unsustainable ecologically. We are winning the battle against uh, famine, war, pestilence, and even death. That is thanks to capitalism. Our debate will go in three rounds, and then our audience will choose the winner. As always, if all goes well, civil discourse will also win. Hi, I'm John Donvan, host and moderator of Intelligence Squared U.S. Here are some names that chill us. Three Mile Island, Fukushima, Chernobyl, places where catastrophic accidents at nuclear power plants seem to suggest that nuclear power is just too dangerous. And so for many years, the sun seemed to be setting on nuclear as a way to keep the lights on. But you know what else nuclear power is? It's carbon-free. Its impact on global warming is negligible. Which raises the question, if we're looking for ways to mitigate climate change, should nuclear be getting a new look? Would the risk be worth it? Or is it riskier not to go more nuclear? Well, in all of these questions, we think we have the makings of a debate. So we did it. We brought two teams together, two teams of two who are experts in their fields, to argue yes or no to this statement. It's time to expand nuclear power. The debate went in three rounds, and as always, our live audience in New York City voted to choose the winner. But first, just before that debate began, I sat down with Bill Nye, the science guy himself, who explained what nuclear power is and told us about the time he changed his mind after attending one of our debates. Here's my chat with Bill. There was a really interesting story that relates to you in Intelligence Square that I want to start with. Ah, uh, yes, you, yes. You, you have been in the past a member of our audience. You've been out there, and there was one particular debate that you attended, and an, an interesting thing happened. So I was a debate about genetically modified organisms, GMOs. The resolution was genetically modify food. So I would have been skeptical, had been skeptical of it, because we have so much extra food in the world that goes to waste, when I had come of age and was doing science education on the TV, it would, to, to sequence the genome of a corn plant would take a month. And so I felt that you could have knock, so-called knock-on effects. You could do something to the ecosystem of a farm that you didn't mean to do, and this would then make it uh, GMOs just not necessary, and let's not do it, and let's not, you know, Prometheus, let's not mess with the unknown, but I watched the debate, and the, the key figure for me was Rob Fraley, who was the uh, head of Monsanto, Monsanto, ah! <laughs> <laughs> and he was very compelling, and so he buttonholed me after the debate, and he invited me to St. Louis, to Monsanto, ah! in St. Louis, and uh, I went there, I looked around and I did more research and I said genetically modified foods or genetically modified organisms are really okay. They can sequence, they, those people, can sequence uh, genes now in about five minutes. It's really amazing. So in the 20 years since I did the, the Science Guy show, I believe that, that's I'm justifying it. I believe the technology advanced to the point where they really can get a very good sense of what will happen to ecosystems. And they do just extensive tests and I think genetically modified crops are going to be a big part of the future. That's what I've concluded. So since we're... But it started here. And that's what... <laughs> I will not interrupt an applause line for Intelligence Squared. <laughs> I almost did. It would be interesting to hear your experience on the process of changing your mind in the face of, of, of a scientific argument being put before you. Tonight we're, having, we're going to be here scientific arguments. In any way, was it difficult for you to let go of well, a sure. conviction? Like, yeah. what's that emotional process well, like? And I tell every, you don't do it immediately. It's not the so-called light bulb. You sit and think about it. And I, you know, I had the resources to go two places. I, I went to St. Louis and walked around Monsanto. Then I went to Minneapolis to the 
monarch venture. So one of the concerns about glyphosate, which you know as Roundup, is that it kills milkweed, which farmers think of as a weed, uh, but a monarch butterfly, I don't know exactly what they think, but I believe they think of it as food. And so one of the concerns was, or a huge concern, was you're killing the monarch butterflies because the glyphosate is killing the milkweed. So they had this meeting, uh, Monsanto, ah, Frau Brook, and, and... It's getting they, smaller and smaller. And the hippies, <laughs> the monarch butterfly-loving hippies. And they've reached this, I thought, kind of cool agreement. There are now refuges of milkweed on what people call the flyways of monarch butterflies. It's really it's kind of cool. If, if you come to a point... But it took weeks, well, it took months. And, and if That's you come to, to a to point, sort point. of intellectually, emotionally, psychologically, where you're saying, I was wrong, that means I was an idiot. Um, no, I, there's you, other you, reasons you, I think I'm an idiot. Okay. Yeah, yeah. There's but a how, lot of evidence, I think people who know me. The know process it. of letting go of an idea. Oh, it's, it's, you don't do it in a weekend. It takes quite a while. But it was the Intelligence Squared that changed my mind, so thank you. So uh, you like to teach, and you've agreed. <laughs> you've agreed. Um, though you, you will qualify yourself as not an expert in this, but you've studied up for it to give us a little bit of lesson that we can use in this debate about how nuclear power is generated, just basically how it works. So I bet most people here know that we have discovered electrons, protons, and neutrons. And so there are certain elements that are created in essentially exploding stars that contain energy, primordial energy in them that's still there today. And you've heard of them, uranium. Uh, you might have heard of neptunium. Anyway, uranium decays. Some of the neutrons go flying out of it. And if you can get the neutrons to run into each other, it generates heat. And we love heat. Uh, we take the heat and we boil water or some coolant and run a turbine which turns an electric generator, a magnet, um, a coil of wire moving through a magnetic field, and we get electricity. So it's heat. Uh, and so this is called fission. And it's a process different from what happens inside a star. That's fusion. But uh, it's big atoms falling apart. And the energy of big atoms falling apart, we harness. But the same flying apart atom will uh, damage your DNA. And so this is why that's radiation poisoning or uh, you, don't want to, you don't want that. And that's why people are afraid of it. I want to say this to end it on a positive note. It has been a pleasure and an honor oh, and wow. a lesson. Thank you Thank very you. much. Bill Nye. Let's change the world. Cool. Thank you so much, Jim. Thanks. Let's listen. Let's, uh, let's hear what they have to say. Critical thinking. Let's meet our debaters. Please first welcome on the team arguing for the resolution, ladies and gentlemen, Kirsty Gogan. You, you are the co-founder and executive director of Energy for Humanity. That's an NGO that is focused on decarbonization and on energy access. You flew in from London to join us. It's so great to have you here. And thanks, thanks so much for having me. I'm really delighted to it's be here. It's our pleasure. Kirsty Gogan, everybody. And let's meet your partner. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dan Poneman. Uh, Dan, you have some government service related to this issue. You are former Deputy Secretary of Energy in the Obama administration. You're now President and CEO of a global energy company that is supplying enriched uranium for uh, commercial nuclear power plants. It is called Centris Energy. Thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you. Glad to be here. Great to have you here. And of course, we have two debaters arguing against the resolution. Please first welcome Gregory Yatsko. Greg, also uh, a person with the government service in this issue, you are a former chairman of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, after which you wrote a book, the title of which was Confessions of a Rogue Nuclear Regulator, and you are now the founder of an energy company called Wind Future LLC. Greg, it's great to have you on Intelligence Squared U.S. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. And let's meet your partner. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Arjun Makajani. Arjun, longtime expert in this field. You're the president of the Institute for Energy and Environmental Research, and you're author of a book called Carbon Free and Nuclear Free, a Roadmap for U.S. Energy Policy. You have spent decades studying nuclear disarmament and energy efficiency. It's great to have somebody like you here. Thanks so much for joining us. Ladies and gentlemen, well, our four debaters arguing on the resolution, it's time to expand nuclear power. Let's move on to our debate. 
Let's start with round one. Round one will be opening statements by each debater in turn. Up speaking first for the resolution. It's time to expand nuclear power. Please welcome everyone. Dan Poneman, former Deputy Secretary of Energy. Thank you, John. Thank you. I'm going to start by asking a question. How many people here believe that climate change is a global environmental crisis that requires our best efforts to address? Wow. Uh, I would say that's a vast majority. Evidence supports your concern. We've just experienced the 10 hottest years in history of the planet. Arctic sea ice in the summer gone. Hundreds of millions of people displaced. And what are we doing about it? We have a Paris Climate Agreement that pledges to get to 2 degrees centigrade global warming over pre-industrial levels, or better yet, 1.5 degrees. But in fact, we're way off track. So how are we going to get back on track? First, consider the scope of the problem and the urgency. By 2050, electricity consumption will increase by 100%. In that same period of time, scientists tell us we've got to cut carbon emissions from electricity production by 100%. Electricity is the easy one to solve before you get to transportation and building heat and agriculture. Now, I love renewables, but guess what? It still doesn't get you to decarbonizing the electricity sector by 2050. If you go to the International Energy Agency or the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, they will all tell you the only way to close that gap is by a significant expansion of nuclear power. I'm going to focus just one moment on one of the problems that's a deep concern of many, the spread of nuclear weapons. And I'm here to tell you that nuclear weapons do not, have not historically spread through commercial nuclear power. To the contrary, I can tell you of a case when the Soviet Union broke up, I was privileged to be part of a team that negotiated the purchase of 500 metric tons of highly enriched uranium from the Soviet Union, the former Soviet arsenal, 20,000 weapons worth. And we blended it down to commercial reactor fuel, supplied one half of U.S. commercial nuclear requirements for 20 years. And since commercial nuclear is 20% of U.S. electricity, for 20 years, one in 10 light bulbs in America was lit up by a former nuclear weapon pointing at you. So don't accept easy bromides. Fear of nuclear power has killed many more people than nuclear power has killed. Consider Germany. After Fukushima, they closed eight reactors. Since that time, 1,100 people per year have lost their lives because of coal-fired pollution. The question presented then is, are we going to put everything we've got into this fight to prevent disaster to our planet? Or are we going to leave the most prodigious source of carbon-free energy in history on the table and hope for the best. Thank you, Dan Poneman. I'm John Donvan. More opening segments on Intelligence Squared U.S. right after this. Our next debater will be speaking against that very resolution. It's time to expand nuclear power. Please welcome Arjun Makajani, president of the Institute for Energy and Environmental Research. We do need to eliminate carbon dioxide, no disagreement. But we have a shortage of two things in solving the climate crisis. We have a shortage of time, and we have a shortage of money. Nuclear energy is really bad for both. In 2005, there was a big announcement with fanfare around then of the nuclear renaissance. More than 30 reactor applications were made to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Most of them were canceled. Only four started construction. Two of those four were canceled after billions of dollars of expenditures. The other two being built in Georgia are years and years behind schedule and billions and billions of dollars of cost overruns. We can't afford that kind of delay. What should we do now? Fortunately, as a result of a lot of good work in this country, Department of Energy, Germany, and other places, today, utility-scale solar and wind 
are cheaper than nuclear. $40 a megawatt hour for solar and wind, $155 a megawatt hour. These numbers are published every year as estimates for new power plant by Lazard. So I'm giving you uh, bow tie credentials. You saw, saw the guy with the bow tie. In reality, nuclear power tends to get more expensive as they get in. And solar and wind, the history is, they've gotten much, much cheaper. So of course, solar and wind are variable. You do need storage, you do need a smart grid, you need investments, and so on. So instead of saying, oh, you need everything, I actually did years of work to figure out what would it take, what would it cost, and how do you compare to business as usual. And I did it with actual data for the state in which I live, Maryland. Demand data, your heating, your cooling, your dishwasher, your refrigerator, hour-by-hour modeling. I also got hour-by-hour data for wind, I got hour-by-hour data for solar. I added the smart grid, I added the storage, battery, five hours of storage. It's cheaper than business as usual, 10 to 20% cheaper. And since I finished my calculations, solar and wind are cheaper now than they were back then. So now we're told small modular reactors are going to come along because large reactors take too long and they're too expensive. And small modular reactors, we're going to do mass manufacturing. And because there'll be a supply chain at mass manufacturing, they'll be cheaper. Well, when you go from large to small, you lose something that's well known called economies of scale. When you go to mass manufacturing, you also gain something. It's called the possibility of recalls. How are you going to recall a radioactive reactor that's now in the center of your electricity system? No answers. And these reactors are vulnerable to problems. Now you've got a costly reactor. It's not going to be cheaper than what existing reactors are. This is a mirage. Thank you very much. (laughs) And a reminder of where we are, we are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, arguing it out over this resolution. It is time to expand nuclear power. You have heard from the first two debaters, and now on to the third, welcoming to the lectern our third debater. Please give a round of applause for Kirsty Gogan, co-founder and executive director of Energy for Humanity. My younger self would be shocked that I'm here on this stage today arguing in favor of this motion to expand nuclear energy. I've dedicated my life to working on environmental and social justice. After college, I was a grassroots environmental activist, planting trees, uh, boycotting flying, organizing protests against GMOs and cars and nuclear weapons. And yet here I am because, frankly, so much is at stake. Changing my mind about nuclear energy felt like betraying my tribe. It was hard to admit that I was wrong, hard to be judged, even excluded by my friends, for challenging the environmental anti-nuclear touchstone. But climate change made me reevaluate nuclear energy, and it was a shock to find that I'd been wrong about the risks that I thought were real, about our chances of making a real dent in climate change without it. But despite 30 years of successfully building public and political support for action on climate change, we have not made a dent in the upward trajectory of emissions. In fact, incredibly, half of the emissions that are currently in the atmosphere today, we've emitted in the past 30 years. And that prosperity, that modern life, depends on massive amounts of electricity, reliable energy. And yet, half the people in the world still lack access to enough energy. Many depend on dangerous smoky fuels for cooking and for lighting in their homes, and this lack of access to modern energy causes millions of deaths. So this isn't just an environmental issue. It's an ethical issue. It's a public health issue. It's a feminist issue. So not only do we have to replace the entire global fossil fuel infrastructure within those 30 years, but probably double or even triple it to meet rising global energy demand and bring modern energy services to all people. So in light of this, many organizations, including the Union of Concerned Scientists, the IPCC, the International Energy Agency, have started to change their stance on nuclear energy. And I looked again at the evidence, and I found that the facts didn't justify my opposition. And yeah, even taking into account 
you know, those famous accidents. Nuclear energy is the safest form of electricity generation. In fact, coal kills way more people in a single day of normal operations than 60 years of global energy has, even including those three big accidents. In fact, for decades, nuclear energy has been the, the single largest source of clean electricity generation in the United States and in Europe, and is recognized by the world's most credible authorities as being a critical part of our response to the climate emergency. So this isn't about nuclear versus renewables. The simple truth is actually that tackling climate change will be more expensive, more difficult, and more likely to fail if we exclude nuclear energy. But there's something else. As a humanitarian and environmentalist, the real appeal of nuclear energy is its incredible energy density, thousands of times more energy dense than coal, which means it can power whole civilizations with a tiny ecological footprint. And what about the waste? I used to worry about the waste, but it turns out that waste streams from nuclear energy are trivial compared to fossil combustion. Waste has not, will not, and does not cause harm to people and the environment. Kirsty Gordon. And please welcome to his lectern our final debater on the resolution. It's time to expand nuclear power. Here is Gregory Atsko, former chairman of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission. What we've heard a lot is what I like to call it's the unicorn nuclear industry. There's a lot of statements that were made by, by Kirsty, by Dan, about this impassioned need to deal with climate change. And I agree 100%. And in fact, what I actually worry about is we have a lot of people talking as if nuclear is the thing that's going to solve this problem for us. And in fact, it's actually not. You didn't hear a lot of facts about the nuclear industry, about what it really takes to build nuclear power in the way that they're talking about. So let's talk about those facts. First of all, right now today, and it's not just electricity that matters, it's energy. And today, 4% of energy in the world is produced by nuclear power. If we look at electricity, it's about 10, 11, 12%. Renewables are bigger than that in both cases, both for energy and electricity today. So renewables already have a head start. But moreover, most of the modeling shows that by 2030, we have to make significant reductions in our carbon footprint in the world. If you take a typical nuclear power plant today, and remember that 4% or that 10 or 11%, to get to a substantial amount of nuclear power, tomorrow we need to start building thousands of nuclear power plants in the world because it takes anywhere from 10 to 15 years to build a nuclear power plant when you start from scratch. And that, that's, on the, that's on the conservative beneficial end. And that's not just in countries like the US or France that have existing nuclear power programs. It's places all over the world. Well, to do that, they can't just start from scratch, or they can't just start and magically bring out a wand and build a nuclear power plant. They need engineers. They need welders. They need people with experience dealing with this technology. And that takes another five, 10 years to build up that infrastructure and that, and that capacity to build, license, and operate nuclear power plants. So we could all agree today that this is a great thing. Nuclear power is wonderful. But the practical reality is we cannot build the amount of nuclear power plants we need in order to make a real dent in climate change in the next 10 to 15 years. I worried about this for a long, long time because I have two small children. I have a four-year-old daughter and a about-to-be seven-year-old son. I've always been conflicted, having dealt with the Fukushima nuclear accident at the NRC. And I thought, my gosh, you know, I'm concerned about this technology, but I'm more concerned about climate change. And so I began to realize and look and learn and recognize that, in fact, the cheapest and fastest-growing sources of clean energy in the world are renewables hydro and renewables, what we call kind of the, when we say renewables, we think of wind and solar and, and geothermal and these kinds of things. The problems with people dying have nothing to do with renewables. They have to do with coal. In the United States, nuclear power has been at about 20% of our electricity generation for decades, right? This, if this is such a great technology, why hasn't it been doing all these wonderful beneficial things? Why hasn't it been eliminating coal deaths for the last 30, 40, 50 years? Because it's been impractical to, to build Renewables are going in the right direction and their prices are going down. So we don't have to make this choice between the difficult challenges of nuclear power versus climate change. We have better alternatives that exist today that we can deploy in the time frame that we need to actually make a real dent in climate change in the next 10 years, not in the next 30 or 40 years. So remember, when you hear about the nuclear industry, Think about the unicorn. It's a wonderful, beautiful, mythical creature. 
and it doesn't exist in the real world. Thank you, Greg Yasko. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our resolution is, it's time to expand nuclear power. Now we move on to round two, and round two is where the debaters address one another directly. They also take questions from me and a little bit later on from you, members of our live audience here in New York City. Our resolution is it's time to expand nuclear power. We've heard a range of arguments uh, between the two sides. We've also heard some common ground. Let's, let's stake out what that is first of all. Both sides agree that climate change is real and urgent, that time is running out. They agree that the world's need for electricity consumption is going up, perhaps by as much as 100% in a short period of time. They agree that coal is very, very damaging to human health. Where they disagree is on the question of whether nuclear is too dangerous to be the solution to climate change as part of the mix, or whether it is too expensive or too impractical. The team arguing for the resolution uh, are arguing that that is not the case at all. They say that the, with the clock ticking, the only way to get the situation dealt with quickly, quickly enough, would be through nuclear power. They say that nuclear is actually the only option. The team arguing against the resolution, Arjun Makajani and Gregory Yatsik, um, they also argue that time is running out, but they say that in the issue of dealing with climate change by the, in the next 10 years, that with time and money short, renewables actually beat out nuclear. So there is a lot there um, that for us to dig into. I want to go to the side arguing for the resolution and take a piece of the argument I heard from your opponents. Your opponents have made the argument, countering your argument that nuclear is the only solution, by saying, look at the record of the last 20 years. Nuclear power plants just can't get off the ground. In a world where they say we're going to need thousands of nuclear power plants in a short period of time to be the solution, that it's just incredibly impractical. Uh, yeah, so nuclear uh, energy is proven uh, over and over as being absolutely the fastest way to um, add clean electricity generation per capita. The perception right now in Europe and in the United States around um, the idea that nuclear is too expensive and too slow to make a meaningful contribution towards solving climate change is informed by, honestly, what's a really small sample of first-of-a-kind, first-of-a-generation projects and they're not re representative of the vast majority of nuclear plants that are being built in the world today. Those projects are first-of-a-generation plants that have to be licensed with an inexperienced regulator. You have to qualify the supply chain. You have to train the labor force. You have to establish your siting process. And then, you know, you have to, you have to build it for the first time. Um, we would expect to see at least a 30% reduction from the first of a kind to the second of a kind and then further cost reductions um, with subsequent plants. Let me take that logic easier. to your opponents. Well, I mean, again, we can go to facts. I mean, I was the chairman of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission when we licensed the Vogel and Summer plants in the United States, which were, to a certain extent, first of a kind. The industry was well aware that they had to meet costs and, and, um, and, and schedule uh, timelines. And they assured me of that repeatedly because they knew that Wall Street would not fund additional projects because there had been a history of cost delays and cost overruns throughout the entire uh, U.S. nuclear industry and really in, in many places in the world. One of those projects is now over five years behind schedule and, and over $15 billion of a budget. And, and that was not a new project. I mean, it was a new project, but this was not with an untrained regulator. This was not with an untrained workforce. Uh, they simply mismanage the project, which is which is typical of, of how the nuclear... But is it inevitable? I mean, your opponents are saying that's not inevitable and that with experience, that process could get more streamlined. Well, I mean, they've been saying that for 30 years. I mean, that's nothing new in the nuclear industry. You know, Mark Twain once said, cat who sits on a hot stove lid will not sit on a hot stove lid again, but he also will not sit on a cold stove lid. So let's not learn the wrong lessons from history. When we got going, we built 104 nuclear units, those units produce electricity at three cents per kilowatt hour. That's cheap. And when you add into the cost of solar and wind, which I love, transmission and the backup power you're going to need, it's very competitive. So I think it's critical to realize when you do get this kind of momentum, what you can do in a scarce decade. One example will suffice. Kirsty just came back from Sweden. In their biggest year of building nuclear power, they added 600 kilowatt hours per person per year. So this idea that we're building completely new power plants, first of a kind, is a little stretches the truth. 
these power plants, AB1000, that is being built, were supposed to be streamlined, learn lessons from Three Mile Island, safer, faster. The regulator said, we streamlined the regulatory process, we'll give you a license for the site and the operating license all at the same time, so it'll be faster, cheaper, and better. As it turned out, it hasn't been faster, it hasn't been cheaper, it hasn't been better. The fundamental design of the nuclear power plants that are being built here in France and in Finland and so on has not changed. They're all light water reactors. They all boil water either directly or through steam generators, and they all run a steam turbine. They all have the same kind of controls with control rods. So there's nothing fundamentally different about this technology. It is the same technology that was actually supposed to be better. Let me bring Dan in. I think it's important to recognize that after Three Mile Island, we had a 30-year hiatus. Korea is building reactors. Russia is building reactors. China is building reactors. They're all doing it cheaper and faster. I refuse to believe that American ingenuity and supply chain and talent pool is not up to the task. We just have to apply ourselves. Dan, Dan and Arjun, um, I had expected to hear you make more. You're making the economic and time and practicality argument. You haven't talked about the danger argument at all. I'm curious why you haven't said that nuclear is dangerous. Is it because you actually don't think it's... You don't think that that's actually the case? You know, I, I don't think it matters uh, because, you know, if you have $100 to go do carbon-free electricity, you can build far more with renewables than you can with nuclear, and you can do it faster. So it, it, it doesn't matter that you have all these external issues about safety. Let me, let me bring that to Dan. I respectfully disagree. Renewables are great, and you can introduce them to the grid 10, 20, maybe even up to 30 percent, and the grid can absorb it. But after that, you have to compensate, and you have to have backup power, which is usually fossil-fueled, so you're not getting the carbon-free benefit. Uh, in addition, if you're not going to fuel it with carbon-fueled resources, you're going to need batteries. Varun Savaram in Taming the Sun says that for batteries to support wind and solar providing 100%, as our opponents would have you believe, would require 8 to 16 weeks of battery storage in the United States. We have 43 minutes of it now. And we don't have the transmission lines, which people aren't too keen to build in their backyards either. And so I think we have to put into perspective that you do need, as Kirsty said, a system. And renewables can be a great part of it, but they need to be supported by flexible, dispatchable power. And that's what nuclear provides. We'll hear more questions on nuclear power when we come back. I'm John Donvan, and this is Intelligence Squared U.S. A reminder of where we are. We are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. Let's get back to audience questions. Sir, if you can tell us your name. Hi there, my name is Chris. Chris as in Chris Anderson, who founded TED Talks. Well, kind of. Well, didn't didn't actually to, find uh, them. Run them. Um, welcome. Re really interesting debate. I mean, I'm surprised at the level of agreement that it's not been a debate about safety primarily. It's, it's really a debate about economics. Yeah. And it would help me to have each of you address this from the point of view of what the world needs to do by 2050. We can get well, lost in the detail. We want to know what the overall sure. math is. Thank you. Let's uh, yeah. let Dan take yeah. that on one side and one of you from the other side. So life is full of compared to what's. And I think what you have to look at, I, I can't give you an integer of a sum certain of it's going to cost X. But what I can tell you is that the MIT researchers who have analyzed this will tell you that if you try to get all the way there with only renewables, it will cost you 60% more, and that's conservative. And if something's more expensive, you buy less of it. And if you buy less of it, it's going to be slower, and then we're going to blow past 2050. All of that backup power that you're going to have to build to back up the uh, 90 days in Texas when you don't have any wind, that's going to be enormously expensive. The cheap way to get the job done is by nuclear supplementing renewables. Other side? Well, so I actually did the calculation. When you compare the capital investment in renewables compared to business as usual, the capital investment is comparable. You don't come out ahead one way or another going this way or that way. Where you come out ahead is when you have solar and wind, the operating maintenance costs are very low, and you have no fuel costs. So why is it cheaper? And you can't do it with batteries and solar and wind alone. You do have to have a smart grid. Do we need thousands of miles of new transmission lines? No. In fact, as you know, in New York City, just down the street here across the bridge, they did not build a new power plant after Hurricane Sandy. 
They decided to do solar and storage because a local distributed system would not have been down for a whole week after Hurricane Sandy. If you want resilience, we have to change the model of the electricity sector, even if CO2 were not a problem. Just the intense storms and the severity of what we're experiencing, that would lead you to solar and wind and storage and smart grids and electrified transportation. Okay, I'm going to jump in. Kirsty, can you give 30 seconds on this? So we've got 30 years to make it or 30 years to break it. That's the situation. So we just published an article recently called uh, All of Our Climate Solutions Need to Be Impossible Burgers. And the idea behind that is when I was starting my pro-nuclear environmental NGO, someone was giving me advice and he said, you know what, you think nuclear is controversial? Try meat. Because actually the number one thing that an individual can do to reduce their personal carbon footprint is to eat less meat. And no politician wants to tell anybody to eat less meat, let me tell you. And then the Impossible Burger came along and it's just cost uh, equivalent It's tasty, it's still junk food, everybody loves it, and we've kind of cut through the problem. So we need all of our climate solutions to be like that. And the reason that I advocate for nuclear energy is not just because it's just about the power sector, because actually what we haven't talked about today is that this is the whole economy. That's heat and industry and transport and shipping and aviation. And frankly, we cannot base our climate mitigation strategies on behavior change or using less energy. What we need is cheap substitutes. And nuclear technology is uniquely suited to produce those clean synthetic drop-in fuels that we can use in airplanes and we can use in ships because it's got a tiny environmental footprint, it's scalable, and it produces high-temperature heat. We can use that high-temperature heat so long as it's cheap enough to make hydrogen and to make other carbon-based fuels so that we can switch out diesel, we can switch out gas. Okay, Okay. up at the top row, there's a gentleman standing up. Well, I do want to talk about Fukushima. In addition to the technical aspects of the meltdown, uh, subsequent reporting uncovered just an industry that had become laden with cronyism and decay and entropy. But that's also true of a lot of other human endeavors. So what's your question? So is there something about the nuclear industry? Is the nuclear industry just worse in those aspects than the renewable industry? Uh, Let me take that question to either Dan or... I think that's like a big, big softball to you guys. So so I'm going to let this side respond to it. And it's been somewhat hinted at that it's a very problematic business, is what your opponents have been saying. And the the questioner is putting an even moral spin on it. Human nature is is a, a constant. I will tell you, having worked in and around this business for 45 years... I have found people of extraordinary integrity. I know of no other industry that internalizes all of its costs. The other industries have lots of waste. We account for the waste. We contain the waste. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that there's infallibility in any industry. I think human nature is human nature. What I can tell you is we have to keep our eye on the ball. And the fact of the matter is, That was a tragic earthquake and tsunami, killed 18,000 people, but that wasn't from the nuclear. They just recorded their first nuclear fatality in 2018. Nobody died in Three Mile Island. 57 people died out of Chernobyl. We are trying to save the planet. Now, I'm all for going against corruption whenever and wherever you can find it. Is there arrogance? Yes. Is there sclerotic thinking? Yes. Go after it. But please don't sacrifice the planet in the process because we need carbon-free energy. There's quite a bit of mythology in what you've just said. We account for the waste and contain the waste. You tell that to the Navajo people of this country. You, where the uranium was mined. There are more than 200 million tons of uranium mine waste a large part of them in Navajo country, and still not remediated. They still don't have clean, clean water, and they still live in radon-contaminated houses, many of them. There are more than 200 million tons of milled tailings, which have thorium-230, which is a byproduct, waste byproduct of uranium, which goes into the fuel. There's 20 tons of waste at the reactor, but behind every ton of waste, there's hundreds or even thousands of tons of uranium mining and milling waste, both of which are radioactive, and we import most of the fuel. So Arjun, we're damaging Arjun, Arjun, other countries Arjun, as what, well. So, so what is the bottom line on, on that horror that you describe in re- relation to the question before us? Are you saying that that is endemic, it's unavoidable, it's going to be repeated, that that's 
just the way the business is always going to be? Well, or uranium mining is uh, is unavoidable in the uranium business. If you if you want nuclear fuel, okay. you have to do uranium mining. I, I want to take it to the other side. Or you have then. to separate plutonium. Or, or very quickly, Kirstie, very either quickly. one. Well, if you took all of the waste generated from the beginning of the U.S. commercial nuclear industry, it would fill one football field 10 yards deep. That's it. From coal, it would reach up to the space station. You take all the nuclear waste that satisfy your energy requirements for your lifetime, it would fit in a soda can. So we have to put this in the context of the scale. We know how to contain it. We've seen geologic formations that have done it. The Finns have figured out how to do it. The Swedes ended up with two communities competing for the opportunity to host a repository. This is a solvable problem. I, I guess I facts don't penetrate. Well, they, well, I just say the, the original question had to do, I think, with, with, with accents and with the nuclear industry. And I think, one, again, one of the things you have to keep in mind is that if we do dramatically increase the amount of nuclear power plants we have in the world, we will increase the frequency of accidents. So accident frequency, because they, they, are, a, they are a largely unavoidable uh, scenario. So we will get to a point in which, if we're dramatically increasing reactors, we're talking about accidents maybe happening every year, every two years, every five years. Now, all of those accidents may not require significant health effects, but they are going to affect the industry. They're going to affect the energy generation. And all we have to do is look to what happened in Japan. After the accident in Japan, Japan shut down its entire nuclear fleet because they had to do safety checks on those reactors. And what happened is they turned to fossil fuels and their emissions went up. So their solution was dramatic increases in energy efficiency and a build down of solar power in about five years where they dramatically increased that. So now they have replaced that nuclear generation with efficiency, conservation, and solar. I, I might not be able to get to your question depending on how long Kirsty takes. Uh-huh. Okay, so two sentences. So Fukushima showed that nuclear going wrong is better than coal going right. And the World Health Organization reports, which I've read in detail around the Chernobyl and the Fukushima accidents, have told us that the by far greatest public health impact caused by both of those act- accidents was fear of radiation not radiation itself. And that is all to do with how we responded. Do you have a question that you can put in one sentence now? Yes. Um, you mentioned that what we need to do is make, is make it cheap, right? That's the problem. Uh-oh. So my question is, is it possible to make it cheap in a very few amount of sentences? How? And if it's not possible, uh, why? Okay, why that was great. <laughs> okay, can I? Damn. There's a whole new generation coming along and they are going to build reactors that are standardized in design. One of the reasons why these reactors have gone so far over cost and over schedule is because they're stick-built. They don't finish designing the reactor before they start building it. We just got to do things smarter, better, and cheaper. And I, again, refuse to believe that we don't have the ingenuity to do it. Other side. I mean, the industry told me that 10 years ago. Uh, they told me that 15 years ago. They told me that 20 years ago. So it's, it's, it's a common talking point that the next generation of reactors is going to be better. The reactors, in specifically in the United States, were promised to be better. They failed dramatically. That concludes round two well, of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our resolution is it's time to expand nuclear power. Let's begin round three. Round three are closing statements by each debater in turn, making his closing statement for the resolution. Please welcome again Dan Poneman, former Deputy Secretary of Energy. On November 14, 1938, President Roosevelt convened a meeting at the White House, and he was briefed on the impending threat from Nazi Germany. Now remember, after I grew up as a boy, loving the sea, loving sailing, building model ships, he'd become Assistant Secretary of the Navy. He had communicated with Alfred Thayer Mann on the superiority of naval power. And yet that day, facing an existential threat of a rather different character, he authorized a massive expansion, something they said could not be done, of American air power. In 1939, we produced 3,000 airplanes. By 1945, we had produced 300,000 airplanes and won World War II. Now, conceivably, FDR could have said, you know what, I don't think so. I think Admiral Mann was right. We can do this with sea power alone. But he decided to go for it. And the question he had to ask is, did he want to risk the answer to an existential threat 
on the hope and the prayer that his preferred strategic outcome would be achieved with naval power alone. He did not. I think we're in an existential moment today. Are we going to leave the most prodigious source of carbon-free energy known to humanity outside of the realm of what we're going to try? It may work. It may not work. I think we have no choice but to throw everything we can at the climate problem, including nuclear. Thank you, Dan Poneman. And here to make his closing statement against the resolution, here is Arjun Makajani, president of the Institute for Energy and Environmental Research. Let me tell you a story. How did nuclear power start as an idea that might be cheap and economical? It started with the Adams for Peace speech. It is a fig leaf on the horror of the thermonuclear bomb. President Eisenhower didn't want to make a gloom and doom speech, and he said, give me something good to say, and they gave him Adams for Peace. After that, there was a propaganda campaign, and they called, Commissioner Murray called it propaganda at that time. That resulted in the greatest business managerial disaster in history that I've told you about. That was round one, fool me once. Then we had the nuclear renaissance. It's all streamlined, we have standardized design, AP1000 will build them large like cookie cutters, standardized uh, streamlined licensing procedures. Last time we had all this, you know, inspections and reinspections. Now we'll do it right. Fool me twice. Now we've got this mass manufacturing standard uh, small modular reactors. Let me tell you, the small modular reactors that's being certified, it has a steam generator inside the reactor, which will be very much more radioactive than the steam generators we have today, which is the most frequently replaced uh, expensive component of pressurized water reactors. In fact, they've been replaced in all of them. Fool me thrice. Now, if you want to be in the fool me thrice school, expensive and doesn't work too well and takes too long sitting at the edge of the climate precipice, please vote for that. <laughs> Thank you. Arjun Makajani. The resolution is it's time to expand nuclear power here, making her closing statement against the resolution. Kirsty Gogan, co-founder and executive director of Energy for Humanity. So the vast majority of nuclear plants that are being built today they're being built on time and they're being built on budget and they're very cost competitive with fossil fuels and with renewable energy. And when we uh, did this study looking at new build uh, projects around the world for the British government, we looked back at the United States experience. And you know what was really surprising and interesting to find was that you guys have done it before as well and you've actually achieved an average cost which is, which is equivalent to the best costs are being achieved in the rest of the world today. And you know how you did that? You did it through a programmatic approach by building up skills and experience and capability within the supply chain, within the labor force, within the regulator, within the project leadership team to deliver good projects. So you've done it before. Now, the anti-nuclear movement was created at a time when climate change just wasn't really understood as an existential threat. And if it wasn't for climate change, yes, we should just burn gas. But now is the time to reevaluate what we think of as the risks of nuclear energy in light of the real and present dangers presented to us by climate change, by air pollution, that threaten the lives of millions of people materially every single year. And we just cannot base our climate mitigation strategies on poor people remaining poor because it's not realistic, it's not ethical, and you know what? It's not our decision. Thank you, Kirsty Gogan. And our final speaker will be speaking against the resolution. Please welcome to the lectern Gregory Yatsko, former chairman of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission. I'm convinced. I think they've presented a wonderful argument. It's just not true. The solutions that we need to deal with the climate crisis are in front of us. They're cheap, they're available, but they're not nuclear. It doesn't matter what we decide today, what anyone decides today about whether we should, we should give nuclear a new, a new opportunity, a new look. It cannot compete in the marketplace. It cannot provide the kind of power we need in the future. And it has all these ancillary issues about safety, which we haven't really touched on, but which are there. So these are wonderful, impassioned statements that, like I said, always make me think, my gosh, am I thinking the wrong thing? And then I go out and I see what's happening in the real world. And we certainly aren't building enough of what we need to build. But we're certainly right now today building far more renewables than we are building nuclear. And we're not building anywhere close to what we need 
with nuclear, and we can't build anywhere close to what we need with nuclear. So we can say that we're going to give nuclear a chance and that it's time for nuclear, and it doesn't matter. Our hope rests with the things that can work today, not with the things that we promise are going to get better tomorrow, because they've been promising for 15 years that they're going to get better tomorrow, and they haven't. And yet, while we're talking about this, renewables have quietly become so cheap that they can work everywhere. So if you think that we can solve the world's problem with nuclear, then God help us, because we're not going to get there. Thank you, Gregory Yatsko. And that concludes closing statements in our Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I have the final results on the first vote. 49% of you agreed with the resolution that it's time to expand nuclear power. 21% disagreed. 30% were undecided. On the second vote, 47% agreed. With the four side, they lost two percentage points. The team arguing against the motion. Their first vote was 21%. Their second vote was 42%. They picked up 21 percentage points. The team arguing against the resolution, it's time to expand nuclear power, named our winners. Our congratulations to them. Thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared US. We'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Intelligence Squared US. You can learn more about our series or buy tickets to upcoming debates by visiting iq2us.org. That's iq, the number two, us.org. The debate you just heard was recorded live at the Florence Gould Hall in New York City. Clea Connor is our CEO. Amy Kraft is chief of staff. Shay O'Mara is director of editorial. Connor Kerfman is our creative and marketing strategist. Jen Zelmer is senior researcher. Rob Christensen and Mary Dewey are the radio producers. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. And I'm your host, John Donvan. Thanks for listening. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.